God 24-7. We're basically contending for four things during this series. Number one, that we're made to worship. We are programmed to worship at a deeper level than anything else that goes on. Deeper than logic, deeper than even framework of belief. Whether you're an atheist or whether a full-on religious fundamentalist, you worship. You can't help it. It's what you are. It's what you were made to do. This, you might find this confusing, so hopefully the second point will make it clear. And it's this, worship is 24-7. Worship is the, it's not the thing you necessarily do for two hours on a Sunday, although hopefully this is worship. But it's actually the thing that really gets you. It's the thing that gets you really excited. It's the thing where you, not that you have to try to make yourself excited, but the thing that grabs you. As I've said before, it's the thing you think about when you're not thinking about anything. It's the thing you think about when you're in the shower. What does your mind go to? And you find yourself getting excited thinking about certain things. That's what you worship. It's what, it's what presses your buttons. It's what makes your eyes light up. It's what gets you talking. It's what captivates your heart. It's what grips your affections. That's what you worship. Thirdly, that the object of your worship is the difference between life and death. You either worship the creator or you worship something created. If you worship the creator, you're enjoying life to the full. Because only he can satisfy those affections. If you worship what is created, its end is death. There may be passing pleasure, but its end is death. And finally, that a way has been made for us, though not by us, so we can be restored to true worship. So that's what we're contending for through this series here. We've looked at time, how we use our time as worship. We've looked at speech, how we use what we say. We've looked at sex last week. This week is work. Work as worship. I think there's two extremes. The first extreme I met this week. I was in the cash and carry, where I go pretty much every week to just stock up for the consumables we use on a Sunday. And one of the guys who was working there, he just started talking to me. I don't know why. He just maybe he thought I had a friendly face. He started talking to me, and uh, that, that wasn't a joke. That wasn't a joke. And uh, he started telling me about, in 1976, he bought a shop in King's Cross with properties above it for £26,000. Can you believe it? So a shop in King's Cross with properties above it. He worked there for 22 years. Over those 22 years, he had three days off. The shop was closed for three days over those 22 years. He then finished working there 11 years ago. I imagine that he'd made enough. He says he now makes 40 grand a year on one of the properties above King's Cross. And now he works on the shop floor of a cash and carry for the last 11 years. That, for me, is the most bizarre part of it. He literally, he, his job was to, I bought the trolley with the stuff, it was to lift up the stuff, he's 60 now, lift up the stuff, put it under a barcode and onto another trolley. That's what he did. This guy earns 40 grand a year from one of his properties in King's Cross. That's a good, that's a pretty strong work ethic. Um, <laughs> it was supposed to be funny. Uh, <laughs> I think it's probably worshipping work, isn't it? I think maybe it's crossed the line. I don't know. I don't want to judge the man, but I thought, man, this is like, there's workers worship and then there's worship in work. Um, workaholism is bad. Bad, 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 bad news. It's like anyone who's a workaholic there, you can find they're always trying to prove something. Trying to prove something to a parent. Trying to prove something to themselves. Or trying to prove something to an imaginary voice. Constantly tells them what they should be doing. They're always very driven, driven people. Um... The person who never takes their leave, the person who neglects other areas of life for work constantly, the fool. 
to what they are. It's common, a common little quote is that no one ever said on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. And I think it's true, isn't it? No one ever said that. Let's look at Psalm 127, verses 1 to 2. Here we go. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives... Now this can be translated two ways in the Hebrew. Either says, he gives to his beloved sleep, or he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. This is a verse which really... It it cuts to the heart of workaholism. It's futile. It's vain to rise early and, and, and late to bed and constantly anxious about work. It is futile. Are you one of God's beloved? Did you know him? He'll give to you in your sleep. And he'll give to your sleep as well. There's something very humbling about lying in bed sleeping. It's a great spiritual exercise. Just don't do it too much. But what's good about it is that you're showing you can't do it all. I can't do it all. And I'm now going to switch off. And he keeps the whole thing going, isn't he clever? That's one extreme. The other extreme is what I call the lottery mentality. And it's this. If I could just win, then I'd never have to work again. Really, this is the worship of leisure. It's a complete misunderstanding of what it is to be human. There's no, no grasp of the joy of labouring to produce something good. That is wonderful. To labour and exert yourself to produce something good. There's something beautifully human and fulfilling about that. Expending effort to create something. To this person, everything on a plate is seen as the ultimate goal. And it's a deception. It leads to neglect and it leads to laziness. Let's look at Proverbs 24 to give us uh, scripture referring to this. I passed by the field of a sluggard. Sluggard's a lazy one. But the vineyard of a a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. Stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and I considered it. I looked and I received instruction. So he's looking. What does he learn? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want, that is lack, like an armed man. So this is the person at this extreme who just feels like it works a bad thing. I'll just, things will pan out. No, they won't. Your whole life will be neglected and will become overgrown. You have nothing to show for your life. Let's go back to Eden to find out how it should be, shall we? Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and verse 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. This is the will, this is the plan of God. We see the man is created to work under authority and with accountability, and the woman is created to help him in that. Both are created to produce, to cultivate and to develop through joyful labour. He being created to work is more likely to be task focused. Her being created for companionship is more likely to be people focused. But they're both engaged in the work. The man must work and will greatly benefit from companionship. The woman must relate and in so doing will be a great help to the work. The man must not be domesticated. 
That's controversial. You'll kill him. You will kill him. What about the woman? (laughs) It won't kill her. If the woman has children, she needs to nurture them. She has the freedom to pursue business, etc. while doing that, as long as the home and the children are looked after as the priority. If you want backup for that, I'm not going to go through it now because it's a whole sermon in itself, but I think it's worth saying. Titus 2, verses 4 and 5, it's not on the PowerPoint. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31. So it encourages entrepreneurial, business head, creativity, working and all of that. But if, if, if children have been had, then the mum absolutely needs to nurture those and look after the home as a priority. That's controversial. Neither the man or the woman must be unemployed. Neither of them. To be unemployed is a terrible curse. I've been in this situation twice and it's hard. It's really, really hard. We're in the middle of probably one of the biggest recessions the earth has ever known. So, you know, it's going to happen, isn't it? So it's not to make people feel bad if it happens, but just to say it's not a desirable position to be in. You might think, well, of course course it isn't. Actually, some people think it's great. I think it's great. Rub their hands together, grab a three-month holiday. No. No, it's not good at all. And it will really damage you. It really will. And often, partially, when you're working with people and you find they fall into sin, often you find they've just got as a vacuum. It's just too much time. It's just too much time. They're not employed about anything. They're not, they're, they've not, they're not engaged in any work. And as such, we're always going on the internet. Well, then what happens next? We know what happens next. And then Adam and Eve sin. They disobey God and God comes and God judges them and brings this curse. And the curse hits work as well as all other relationships. Let's look, look at it. In Genesis 3, um, God said... No. Back, back up one. Okay. Speaking to Eve, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then talking to Adam, curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So there's pain that comes to the man and the woman in both areas of work. Okay? So in toil and in childbearing and nurture, there's pain. Pain comes. Pain is part of life. Pain is speaking to a man, took the kids, took the kids camping for a night the other day, speaking to a guy. And he started telling me a bit of his life story. And he just says, beep, happens. You know the word. And you just think, yeah, it does. It does. Life's got a lot of pain in it. We live in a fallen world. The woman's work of childbearing and the man's work of breadwinning will no longer be easy. In labour there will be great danger. There will be excruciating pain. There will be massive effort and toil. And in the workplace there will be tricky bosses, injustice, hard ground to dig, badly done work to undo before you can start your work, corruption, gossip, and sometimes very little to show for much effort put in. And you think, why? You live in a fallen world. You live in a fallen world. And we're not exempt from that because we are in Christ. It's the curse of living in a fallen world. It wasn't meant to be like this, but it's what sin has done. So there's the background, a bit of a background of a a work ethic, if you like. Man and woman created to work together, bringing different strengths into that mix. We're not to go caricatured into workaholism or into a lottery mentality. It's part of our calling in God, it's part of our worship to work, but it's not as productive and easy as it should, as as it originally was meant to be because of sin. So there's a backdrop there. Enter Jesus. Everything starts shining. Listen to Jesus, John 17, verse 4. He's just about to be crucified. Speaking to the Father, praying, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. 
Jesus redeems everything. <laughs> he redeems everything. He redeems individual people. He redeems societies, cultures. He redeems, you name it, he redeems it. The whole cosmos is going to be redeemed one day. Hallelujah. Jesus redeems everything. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now I want us to look at Jesus today and just meditate on work as a result of Jesus' example. Jesus knew what he had come to do. He did it completely, he did it perfectly, he did it worshipfully. In Jesus, we see very importantly that he works for us and he gives himself to his work. Okay, two things. He works for us and he gives himself to his work. This means in Jesus we have a substitute and an example. Very important. But you've got to have both in the right, you've got to have it in the right order. If you get it in the wrong order, it all goes wrong. Okay? We have Jesus as a substitute. He worked for us. He worked for you. Say, Jesus worked for me. Jesus worked for me. Alright? And he's an example. So Jesus shows us how to work. We see how we are to work when we look at Jesus. I wanted to just firstly just look at Jesus' work for us, his substitutionary work. It's a beautiful thing. If we look at the three Hebrews passages, here they come. Firstly, speaking of Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice that sat down there. Okay, next passage. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Okay, next one. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of, the cro- at the throne of God. So what we see here is that Jesus is our high priest, our high priest has made purification for sins. We see it there. Purification for sins in the first, in the first um, passage. So how did he do that? Secondly, we see that he offered for all time a single sacrifice. What sacrifice did he offer? We see it here in Hebrews 12. The cross. He endured the cross. He offered himself. Okay? So Jesus in his high priestly ministry offered that single sacrifice himself once and for all. That was his work. And after this mighty work, which concurrently paid the debt for our sins satisfied the wrath of the Father, fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, destroyed the ruling power of sin, broke the curse of mankind under judgment, disarmed all demonic powers, annulled Satan himself, and made a way for man to be reconciled to God. Through that mighty, mighty work, incredible, fruitful, and glorious, he then rested satisfied. You like that? Okay? So we have this mighty, glorious, fruitful work, but he spent himself. You see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's spending himself. He's actually, he's literally sweating blood. He's just, he's, he's in a complete, he's perplexed, he's afraid, but he's completely resolved to do the will of the Father. He gives himself, and he gives himself on our behalf. All that he did on the cross, but accomplishes every blessing that we walk in, and then he sat down. Ah. Work and rest. Work and rest. He regenerates us, makes us brand new. He wipes away our sin, our guilt and our shame through his work. He gives us a new start. He gives us a new name, a new identity. All the results of this one man's work. All the results of that one man's work. He worked for us in his life. He worked for us in his death. And the only reason we're here today is that he worked for us and his work has produced eternal fruit. Amen? 
You're sitting here because his work was fruitful. If it wasn't, there would be no one sitting here. Just before he went to the cross, Jesus said this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You're the fruit. Isn't it wonderful? You see the fulfilment of Jesus' words. He fell into the ground and died. And as a result, many little Christs have been born. Beautiful. It's the work of Jesus on our behalf. So before we even get on to how Jesus redeems work for us and how we approach the workplace and our situations of employment, let us stand in awe of Jesus Christ. Amen? His outstanding work for us. You know the primary work God requires of you? Well, in John 6, 28-29, he was asked by a crowd, what's the works of God? What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Believe in him and we sin. Believe in Jesus. Go on believing in Jesus. Trust in him. At this point, none of you must switch off and say, well, this is obvious. I tell you what. It's one thing to quote it. It's another thing to live it. Yeah? It's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I believe that, but let's, talk, let's get real. Let's just do, let's get down to earth. And another thing to say, this is my food and my drink. This is how I live. This is the thing that gives me joy. Jesus. This is the one who sustains me. This is my food and drink. I tell you, that's, that's the, that is what believing in Jesus should do. He said, whoever believes in me will never be thirsty or hungry. That's what he said, didn't he? Believe in me. That's the work of God. To believe biblically means more than just, okay, I now believe those facts. The word means to trust yourself entirely. Trust is a better word, actually, probably. Trust is one of those things, isn't it? Those trust games, you played those trust games before when, you know, you have to close your eyes and fall backwards. Horrible. Or what if I don't catch you? Sometimes, I say this reverently, trusting Jesus is horrible. Not because he's not trustworthy, but because we battle, don't we? We battle to really trust him. <laughs> we battle with the flesh, the fallen flesh, which wants to find our own way. We battle with the voices we're hearing of unbelief and doubt. And you think, this is horrible. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do it anyway. And then bang, it catches you. You think, that was great, let's do it again. He says, okay. You think, oh no. You know, and it's the Christian life, isn't it? Um, but you know, just to trust Jesus entirely. It's a supernatural act. It joins you. You're joined to Christ through faith. You're united with him through faith. And you're brought into a relationship with God. And suddenly this whole thing makes sense. And it's more than singing songs. It's more than going to church. It's life. It's a relationship. It's knowing God. Where he indwells you by his spirit. Where you enjoy his grace. Only out of that place can true work in the workplace to the glory of God come. If you haven't really settled your relationship with him, if you're not enjoying the grace of God, all of the advice I'm going to give in the workplace in a moment, I think you're going to struggle to apply it. I think you're going to struggle. You might be inspired for the moment, but when it comes to it, you've got to settle, first and foremost, your relationship with God. It's so important. Out of that, the other stuff comes. So, to the workplace. Are you ready? If you're here and you're at school, to the classroom. If you're here and you're at uni, to the campus and the lecture hall, okay? So it's not just, don't na- make it narrow, oh, this is just for those. No, 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 okay? Full stop. What you are employed doing. If you're unemployed, the way you look for work. Okay? Here we go. What is the work that the Lord has for us? 
Maybe what isn't the best way of putting it. Maybe how is a better way of putting it. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. The Lord has never done anything half-heartedly. Ever. To do something half-heartedly is evidence that the thing is not being done in faith. If you cannot give yourself to what you are doing, you're not in faith for it. A marriage, bringing up kids, working in the home, particular job you've got, particular degree you've chosen and that you're studying. If you cannot give yourself, if you cannot bring your might to it, why are you doing it? You need to take some steps back and ask the question, why am I doing this job? Why am I in this situation? The only, way, the only um, situation you can't do that in is if you are at secondary school still. I hated school. I absolutely hated school with a passion. I would sit on the bus in year seven, going past, looking at adults, and I would go to myself, it's all right for you, you've finished school. It's all right for you, you've finished. I hated school. I would look at the bus, 726, that went to Heathrow, and dream of going to Heathrow and catching planes. And I hated school. I hated it. But I had to do it. So, so do you. Because I did. No other reason than that. No. You have to do it. But other than, if, if you're not in a compulsory situation, you have to stop. If you cannot give yourself with all of your might and say, why am I doing this? Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? It may be that you are and you've just got to press forward. Okay? So it doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. But you've got to get to a place where you can give yourself to whatever you are doing. That is God's plan for you. You say, what's God's plan for my life? That. You can give yourself with all your might to what you're doing. Romans 14, verse 23 says this, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Alright? So a New Testament definition of sin is whatever does not come from faith. He said, I'm doing this, but I don't know why I'm doing it. Well, stop and get with God and work out what you should be doing. Don't just trundle through like that. You're in sin. Okay, let's get to a very, very meaty passage on work from Colossians 3. Now, before, we, before it comes up, this is to do with slaves. I want to make some comments on slavery for a moment. It's advice to slaves how to obey their masters. Just to say, the slavery we had 2,000 years ago in, in the Middle East is very, very different than, for example, uh, the human trafficking we have today or the um, trafficking of the Africans from um, you know, West Africa to uh, America and the West Indies centuries ago. It's a completely different thing. They reckon that 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, about a third of the known world were slaves. And it was really just a different, it was like a different class, if you like. And you were born into it, and, and, there were, and if you did well, very often you could you know, purchase your own freedom. You were generally treated well, sometimes as well as one of the children in the family. So, it, so this is why the Bible doesn't say things like, slaves run away. It doesn't say that. Okay? Slaves fight for your freedom. It doesn't say that. Why? Because it's the slavery there was so different from the slavery we talk about today. So it helps you to just understand that and help you, help you to make sense of this. So, Colossians 3. Here we go. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So we'll keep that up there for a second, just while we make some comments on this. It's basically saying this. If you're a housewife, look after your home happily. If you've got an office job, do so with integrity. If you're a manual worker, 
Work enthusiastically. If you're studying, study diligently. If you're in retail, sell things honestly. If you're out of work, then look for work thoroughly. If you're doing temping work, then work at wherever your place is if you are going to be there for life. If you're working with people, then do so compassionately. Work as worship. It's not about what your boss is like. It's not about what your line manager's like. It's almost irrelevant because you're not doing it for them, you're doing it for him. It's a completely different mindset. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy always. It doesn't mean you're never going to find yourself battling emotionally. No, of course you will. But actually, what do you settle on? I'm not doing it to please them. I'm doing it to please him. It's part of my worship. I've been bought with a price. He's worked for me and brought me into this position. Out of slavery, into sonship, out of alienation, I've been reconciled to him. He's, got, he's given me eternal life as a gift. I'm in this amazing position. I've got this glorious identity as a child of God now. Out out of that, I want to do all things to please him. And you apply that into the workplace. That's what's being taught here. It's revolutionary. These three verses are the verses to meditate on at the start of each day. Have you ever been overlooked at work unjustly? This verse is a remedy. Has there been injustice? This verse is a remedy. Are there unexpected visits from superiors at any moment? This verse is a remedy. It's huge. It's worship. I want to give you some top tips on work, then we'll do a little bit of Q&A. Top tip number one. Honour those in authority over you at work. Honour them. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Your boss has been put there by God. Your teacher has been put there by God. Your lecturer has been put there by God. Your line manager has been put there by God. You must say, you don't, must be you don't know what they're like. I know I don't, but he does. And he put them there. So you honour them. Why? Because you're honouring him. <coughs> Not because they're nice. That's irrelevant. You honour them because you're honouring him. It's too easy to criticise, complain, and passively resist your bosses. It's too easy. You mustn't have that attitude towards your managers or supervisors. Don't do it because you reap what you sow. You may be an authority one day and it's not easy. Because sometimes you can't do anything right. Whatever you do, you're going to get hit for it. Whatever decision you make. Don't be a handful to your bosses. Be a joy. Be a joy to them. Obey the rules as well. Are you allowed to email at work? If not, guess what? Don't email. Just don't email. To do so is sin. You're not honouring the authorities. You're not allowed to. If you really need to, you go and ask. I remember once when I was a builder, working in Mayfair, um, I looked out the window, and many of you won't remember this because you're too young, but there was um, Paulie Yates and Michael, Michael Hutchins. Who remembers that thing? Any hands, just to help me out here. Okay, 25%. They were both famous um, in their own right. One is a television presenter, one is a singer, and um, Bob Geldof. Right, Paul Yates was married to him. Peaches? All right, okay. Peaches' mum, all right? So, so Paul Yates left Bob Geldof and started an adulterous relationship with Michael Hutchins. And um, I, was, um, I was working in Mayfair. I looked out the window, just, I don't know what I was doing, looking out the window, but I was. Should have been working. But uh, <laughs> I saw Paul Yates and Michael Hutchins outside having a coffee. I thought, I need to tell them about Jesus, you know, because it was all in the headlines at that point about this adulterous relationship. And, you know, I knew that they were both very, I mean, they both are now dead from suicide. So I knew it was very desperate. They, you know, they were very unstable. I've got to tell them about the Lord. 
My boss was a backslidden Christian, so that means he's someone who had been a believer once, and, but now just would say he wasn't a believer and had no interest in it. But I thought, I've, I said, look, I said, Paul, he's in my clutch. I've got to know about Jesus. Can I go? He said, no. So I went about my work, and I just said, Lord, because I knew he didn't believe in God, but I said, Lord, convict him. And about two minutes later, he came back, he gave me a quid, and he went, go and get us a bottle of water. But I knew what he was saying. He knew what he was saying. Went down, spoke to him about the Lord. So, you know, you just, God, you honour, honour those in authority, pray, God will give you a way through. Secondly, if you're asked by those in authority to do something that is ungodly, something underhand, something you just know, this, you know, you just know something's not right or whatever. Look them in the eye and say no. And then tell them why. So I'm a Christian and my conscience won't allow me to do that. In the short term or in the long term, God will vindicate you. God will, vind- God will honour you. Even if in the short term it doesn't look like it, I tell you, God will honour you, God will entrust you with much. He really will. Even if you have to pay a price in the short term, learn to look people in the eyes and say no. I love the book of Daniel. If you want wisdom and work, go, go to Daniel. Because Daniel navigated this t- terribly tricky path. I mean, he was under the authority of a murderous, polytheistic king, a king who believed in many gods, and would try and get him to do all kinds of stuff. And some stuff he would yield to. And then there was this other one, you know, Daniel and the lions. Then I love this story. It's a very, very massive story. Because what happened was, people that worked with Daniel were jealous of him. So they went to the king and said, King, make up this rule that no one can pray to anyone except you for a month. And the king obviously just got caught off guard. That sounds like a good idea and made this rule. And then, and then Daniel, now, Daniel was a man who prayed three times a day. That was his habit. And he would pray, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think he would pray by a certain window that faced toward Jerusalem. At the time, they were in Babylon in captivity. But obviously, Jerusalem had a special place in his heart. Daniel didn't just carry on praying secretly. He carried on praying by the open window facing Jerusalem. He refused to be intimidated by it. Refused. As such was shown in the lion's den. But God honoured him, in not it? But it was just this sense, no, I'm not going to move on that one, actually. I'm not going to. Another stuff he did, he allowed himself to be called Belshazzar, which was a kind of a weird kind of religiously kind of name of a strange religion. He allowed that. He thought, okay, I can do that, no problem. And he navigated this thing, God gives wisdom. But, you know, listen, listen to what um, Peter says in Acts 4, verse 19. He's been told not to talk about Jesus anymore. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Yeah? Then he said, no, don't, talk, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they said, well, you, you decide. Should we listen to you or God? Sometimes you have to say that. Third top tip. Use the time that you are being paid to work to do work. Do the work in the time. Even beware using that time for evangelism. Because you could end up compromising your witness by witnessing. They're thinking, well, they're talking about Jesus, but man, alive, you know, they're just, I don't know, they're kind of doing that with a pencil, but they're chatting to me and they're not really doing anything. You know, they're not really working. They're just they're putting on a show. You've compromised your witness by witnessing. Say, let's talk in the break. Let's get some lunch. They're interested, and talk talk to them then. But do your work. It's very important. Um, when I was a street sweeper, <laughs> all kinds of jobs, me mate. I thought for six weeks I'll be a street sweeper. It was great. It was in the summer. It was brilliant. So, I, I, it was a, a very interesting culture because a lot of people get looked down on and treated badly against. They kind of feel wronged generally. 
So they feel like whatever they can get, they'll get. It's a general culture that I've picked up in that, in that circumstances there. So whatever they can kind of get, they'll get. And they deserve it. Why? Well, because I've been wronged by life. You know, that sort of thing. So we had this situation where I would drive around this guy in a van. He was in charge, but he couldn't drive, so I was his driver. And he would go and visit his dustman mate and basically sit in his front room for about an hour, an hour and a half, drinking coffee and eating biscuits and talking while we should be working. So I would drive in there and I would go and see you. We're going to see Dennis. So, we, you know, we go and sit down. And after about 15 minutes, I'm thinking, I'm getting paid for this, you know, this isn't, it's not right. I said, I need to do some work, Mick. He said, hey, you're all right, you're all right, son, you enjoy your coffee. I, I said, no, I need to do some work. I'm being paid to do this. I can't just sit in here. So they sent me out on the estate picking up weeds. That fine. That was part of the job. And, but you see what, you, I was being paid for it, so I couldn't just drink, do you know what I mean? Now, different jobs are different. Some jobs, they're very intentional. You do your project, you work like a maniac, and then, you know, you have a bit of time out. So it's, you've got to navigate it with the job. But do use... Don't be cheeky. Right. Number four. Number four. Never do anything at work that means you have to look over your shoulder to see if someone's coming. If ever you have to look over your shoulder to see if someone's coming, you are in sin. There's no two ways about it. You are just in sin. You're going against your conscience. You know you're doing wrong. Why are you doing that? Just what are you doing it for? Because you know it's wrong. Potentially, this is a spiritual disaster. Um, Acts 23, verse 1. Um, sorry. Uh, keep that one up there. This is the last point. I didn't do this one. You know, on, um, using your, working for the time you're getting paid for, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. People in the world love to get what they can, can't they? They love it. Ah, yeah, I had two hours and I should have had one. Ah, they love all that, yeah? The time is past for that if you're a believer. Time is past. Don't do that anymore. Okay. Next one on this point, which is don't look over your shoulder. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. We want to be able to say that, don't we? Next top tip, if you're self-employed or studying, managing your, manage your time well to God's glory. If no one's breathing down your neck, you haven't got a clock in or a clock out, there's not that kind of accountability, manage your time worshipfully. So important. So, so important. Paul has a word to slaves and he has a word to masters because masters were the kind of the ones without bosses. You know, they had a bit more freedom. Listen to what he says to masters. Colossians 4. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly knowing you also have a master in heaven. All right? If you're self-employed, you haven't, you haven't, you're your own boss or no one's breathing down your neck, you have got a boss. And he wants to really build good character into you so he can entrust you with loads. So live and order your life in the light of that. Penultimate top tip. Do not try to get people back who wrong you. Don't do it. Proverbs 24, 29 says this. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Don't say that. We have to walk as Jesus did. We have to trust his authority and power over the machines of vice and sin. We have to be confident that over time he will vindicate us and we will bear fruit in the workplace. And he will ensure those who are doing badly will either repent or will at some point face the consequences. Finally, in the workplace, let us be thermostats instead of thermometers. A thermometer merely reflects the current temperature. A thermostat changes the temperature. Be a thermostat. Take the glory of God into the workplace with you. Take the gifts of the Holy Spirit into the workplace with you. Take the gospel into the workplace with you. Take the presence of Christ. Take the character, the likeness of Christ into the workplace with you and change it. And say, well, everyone, does, everyone gossips, so I had to. No, that's thermometer talk. You're called to be a thermostat. You're called to change the temperature bit by bit, little by little. Salt and light. 
We change it. We change where we go by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our attitude must not be to um, must be not to overcome, not to be overcome by the situation around us, but to overcome in it. Uh, Romans twelve twenty one. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah. Don't be overcome. Oh, well, everyone's doing it. No, overcome evil with good. The bar is high, isn't it? <laughs> and if you felt that today, you think, oh, this bar's high. It's the Christian life. It's not morals, not just morals, not just ethics. It's Jesus. That's the point. He's the start, he's the middle, and he's the end. We start with Jesus, his grace. We abide in him. We have a single eye to him in everything. And by his great grace, he makes himself available to us as our wisdom in the workplace. He makes himself available to us as our righteousness in the workplace. He's the goal. He's the purpose. When we mess up and fess up, he gets us up and brushes us down and sets us on our way again. Amen? Amen. Yeah? If you're convicted of sin today, you've been sinful in the workplace, what do you do? Confess. Don't build a wall of justifications and arguments and defences. Why? Just don't do it. Just say, Jesus, I've been negligent, or I've been a gossip, or I've been this, that I've, I've gone against my conscience. Please forgive me now and wash me. The Bible promises, doesn't it? We quote this so much. It's such a massive verse. Let's quote it together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Should we say it like we're not at a funeral? <laughs> if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 verse 9. We take the bread and we break it because his body was broken for us because we're sinful. We take the wine and we drink it because his blood was shed for us because we're sinful. (laughs) So why did he do it? Because he loves us. And he's for us. And he wants to give us a brand new start. And he wants to set us up as like him, lights of the world, and put us here and put us there so we can shine away for his glory. That's what he's about. That's what he's about. And in it all, we're just totally aware that if it wasn't for him, this whole way of life, this whole thing we've been looking at today, we just would not exist. We'd be just lost, wouldn't we? But he's had mercy on us. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you for redeeming every part of life. Thank you for going to work in our own hearts and bringing transformation. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us and equips us to be able to live this life. Thank you, Lord, this is entirely supernatural. Thank you that the willpower will not suffice on this one, Lord. We do determine to lean on you. We do resolve to rely on you, Lord God, because that's really all we can do. So we say, Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might increasingly live our lives before you, and be amazing, amazing witnesses wherever we go. Not just because of the words that we speak, but the way that we live. Amen. 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 Now, is there any, any, any questions on that people want to ask? And then we'll, for, we'll just do five minutes and then we're going to just worship. I just want to make sure we're helping people, if there's any. Rachel.